one at a time. This summer, uh, I was going through a bookstore and found this book called One at a Time by Kyle Eidelman. And up at the top, it said, The Unexpected Way, God Wants to Use You to Change the World. And so I kind of began flipping through, you know, the, the table of contents and just seeing the things that were in there. And I'm like, this looks like something that I would probably like to read. Um, and so I remember getting that and eventually spending some time kind of reading one chapter at a time. When I finished the book, um, I learned that Kyle had also preached this sermon series at his church. It was broken up into a couple different sessions, but a lot of the material in the book was similar to that which he preached. And so at Christmas Eve, I told you that reading some of these things was beginning to change my life and my perspective on things. Uh, For instance, if I go into a crowd, like a big crowd where I don't know anyone, I am perfectly content to sit down and just kind of be there. Like some of you understand exactly what I mean. You're like, you know, I'm good to sit there. I don't need to talk to anyone. Some of you are like, that seems so crazy because by the end of five minutes, you've got 20 friends, you know, that you've never met before. And so we're all different in that aspect. But now, like when I go and sit somewhere, if there's someone by themselves for a while or whatever, there's this thought that begins to go in my head. I'm sure it's the Holy Spirit, but just begins whispering, hey, how do you know that person over there is not there for a reason? And sometimes I want to go, but how do you know that reason doesn't have to deal with me? You know, all that kind of stuff or whatever. And so maybe this argument starts in my head and all that kind of stuff with, I don't know if you've ever argued with God, like it doesn't really work. You can even choose differently, but then like he continues to nag at you a little bit saying you should have done that. And so like more often than not, now I'm starting to have these conversations and I'm thankful that they didn't see what was going on in my head because he'd be like, um, you can just stay over there with all those arguments in your head and all that kind of stuff. But the truth is that you and I, like as people, we really do want to influence other people with our lives. Like we want to have an impact. Now, how we go about that and even the level of impact is different for each person, but we all want to make a difference in the lives of other people. However, I think that with the way our culture has shifted, in our mindset, we can equate this idea of having an influence with crowds. The idea, you know what, I have to have some kind of big following or a big platform for people to be able to hear my voice for me to really make an impact. And so we do, we think about that. And and I understand that maybe you have been encouraged maybe by a sermon by me or one of the other staff members up here, or maybe you've listened to a sermon somewhere else or even a podcast that has encouraged you. But I would also bet pretty safely that the moments that you have been influenced the most was when someone sat with you one-on-one and had a conversation, and maybe spoke into you. Or maybe they had some sort of actions that was towards you, and and because of that, it really did impact your life. I would say that that had more meaning than just hearing something from a stage. And I get, man, when you talk about influence, Jesus has influenced the world, like just for centuries, okay? But I think back to looking at him, and there are moments that he spoke to large crowds, I mean, you have the Sermon on the Mount and the crowds were amazed. You have this sermon about the bread of life or the sermon about seven woes or the sermon even about John the Baptist where there are these huge crowds listening. Or in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells story after story after story. And if you read it, it says that he actually had to preach that from a boat because there were so many people all along the shoreline. And so he spoke this to a large crowd. Or even when you're reading the Gospels, there are moments where the Pharisees or the teachers of the law, they come up to Jesus, sometimes wanting to know things and sometimes trying to trap him. But again, these crowds were there. But then, outside of those instances, when you read the Gospels, so many times we see these conversations between Jesus and a smaller group. 
whether that's the entire disciples, whether that's a group of them, whether there's a group of two or three people that have come up, or even just the one-on-one conversations, which sometimes even when we look at, we're like, well, that was kind of random. And maybe the question is, why are all of those recorded for us? And I would argue it's because that those moments, those conversations are when influence really happened. And what's interesting is you can even look in scripture and see there are times where Jesus is surrounded by large crowds and he still focuses on the one. And so if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter eight, all right? Luke chapter eight, we're gonna be in verse 40 in just a moment. But as you're turning there, I wanna tell you a couple other instances. There's a time where Jesus is going into Jericho, large crowds are all around, and there's this tax collector who's a little bit shorter, can't see over everybody, so he climbs up this tree, and as Jesus is walking by, he stops, he looks up into the tree, and he tells Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house today. And you continue watching, and you see the life change that happens, because even amongst the crowd, Jesus focused on the one. Or there's a moment when after Jesus is done preaching, he is going down from the mountainside and it still says that there are large crowds all around him and someone with leprosy runs up to him and begins asking Jesus, if you are willing, will you heal me? And you can only imagine the crowds are all like backing away because like, oh, you're supposed to not come close to us and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus says, I am willing and he heals him. Amongst the crowds, he still focuses on the one. Or even this time, there's this pool of Bethsaida where all these people would go to hoping to be healed. They thought there was something special about the waters, and so they're like, maybe I can be healed. And there's all these people here, and we read that Jesus walks up, and it says, the one who was there. It's not because he was the only one there, but the one that Jesus is focused on for the moment. Amongst the crowds, Jesus focuses on the one. And so now I told you in Luke chapter 8, I want to look at a couple more people that Jesus focuses on even amongst the crowds. And so we'll read verses 40 through 42. It says this, Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. And it says, As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And so here we go. We read the crowds are still around Jesus. And it, did you hear that they were expecting him? Have you ever gone to like, say, a meeting that you knew everyone is at and they're expecting you or you're coming home and you know that your family is expecting you and so you know that maybe there's something there. So I can only imagine what the crowds are expecting of Jesus, but he shows up and even though the crowds are there, Jairus is like, I don't care. Like my daughter is dying and I'm gonna do whatever I can to save her. And so he rushes up and begins pleading with Jesus saying, this is what's going on. Will you help me? And Jesus focuses on the one. Now, there's a little interruption. We'll talk about it here in just a moment. But if we jump down to verses 49 and 50, we see Jesus still focusing on Jairus. And it says, while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. And so even amongst everything that's going on, like Jesus hears this message that comes and you can only imagine like just the heart that had to drop within Jairus of my daughter has passed away, I'm too late. But Jesus hears this, he continues to focus on him and even encourages him and says, if you continue to believe, like I've got this. And if you're to continue reading the story, he follows Jairus home and heals his daughter. Amongst the crowd, he still focuses on the one. But I told you there was a little interruption. Let's go back and read what happens here, starting in verse 43. And again, remember, the crowds are crushing in around Jesus. And so verse 43 says this. 
And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone has touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. And then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. She told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So here's this woman. She's coming up again at the end of her rope. She's tried everything. No doctor has been able to help her. And so she comes up, but she thinks maybe I can just kind of slip in and slip out. And she touches his cloak and is healed. But Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And in this one, we see, you know, Peter's the one saying what's going on. In a couple of the other versions, translations, you'll see that the crowds, the people are like, what do you mean who touched you? All of us are touching you kind of thing. And yet I love the words that simply say when she realized that she could not go unnoticed. She couldn't just slip in and slip out. Like Jesus knew something had happened and she comes trembling and says, this is what happened. And yet he shows her grace and says, man, your faith has healed you. In this moment, he still chooses to focus on the one. Even with Jairus coming and saying, this is it, he's able to focus one at a time. And I just think about that situation and how Jesus focuses on these individuals and whatever his plan was, whatever his timeline, whatever his concerns were, he puts those to the side for the sake of the person who's right in front of him. They get his undivided attention. And so that leads me to a life question I want you to be able to ask of yourself. And this is it. Am I enthralled with the crowd, but not the one? Like, do I feel like I have to have a big following? Do I have to have a lot of people who are following me or listening to me for me to make an impact? Or is the one person important to you? What about conversations that you have with someone? When you're having that conversation, do they get your undivided attention? Or are you thinking about what you gotta do tomorrow or later, or even like you're thinking about an answer for them instead of listening to them? Do they know that they are important to you? I would say if you and I, we really want to make a difference, we need to look for and we need to see the one. Now, sometimes I think what happens is our focus really is in the wrong place. And sometimes it can be the crowds, but sometimes our focus can actually be on ourselves, like we're looking upon ourselves. And even to prove that, for those of you who make um, New Year's Eve resolutions or New Year's resolutions, the goals, things like that, how many of them deal with other people? Or how many of them deal with you and becoming a better person and all that kind of stuff? Like, I think we've began to slowly, because of our society too, begin to look at ourselves and go, I need to do such and such so that I can be happy. And so maybe we'll even think about more. Well, maybe if I had like more money, I would be happy. Or if I would have more space in my house. Or if I had more time, that's all I need and it would work out. Or I need more, more chocolate and that would make me happy. You know, whatever it is, like we think if I just had more of something, that's what it is that would then make me happy. And man, commercials will tell you that. Like all you need to do is keep ordering, keep subscribing, keep dating, and that will bring you happiness. Except the truth is that none of those are long-term happiness. There was a, a psychologist named Martin uh, Seligman, and his job, like he has spent so many years studying this topic of happiness, and he's done all sorts of, um, you know, experiments and things like that just to kind of test his, his results, and what he thinks 
is, what his conclusion is, is that people who focus upon other people, like not comparing yourself to other people, but trying to influence other people, impact other people, doing things for other people, are actually happier than those who don't. And he found that out by saying, hey, I want you to go do these certain activities for someone else and then go and do these activities for yourself. And if you think about it, even in your own life, something that you have done for somebody else, whether it was big or small, I imagine that has stayed with you longer than even when you did something nice for yourself. Like I bought myself ice cream, I bought myself a book or a day at the spa. Like those can be good, but when you talk about really being meaningful, what your mind goes to is these things that you have done for other people. And so... God wants us to take our focus off of ourselves, but unfortunately, I think we've missed a lot of opportunities because we've just been thinking about us. There's a video that I'm going to ruin for a lot of you right now, um, but you can use it on your friends. That's totally fine. But in this video, there are three people who are wearing black shirts. There are three people wearing white shirts, and each set is given a basketball. And what they're told to do is that they are going to begin passing the basketball amongst themselves. So the white t-shirts are going to pass the basketball. The black t-shirts are passing a basketball. And you are told when you're watching this 24-second video to count how many times the basketball is passed between the people with white shirts. Okay? And so you begin watching this or whatever. Well, in the middle of this video, there is someone who is dressed in a gorilla suit. And they start on one side, and they enter the screen. They get to the middle, and they pound their chest, and then they go to the other side and walk off. And this gorilla is on the screen for nine seconds, okay? And this video is called Spot the Gorilla, because after you've watched the 24 seconds and you're trying to watch the basketball, then the question goes, how many passes were made? And so some people like, get it right, some people will get it wrong, and so you get celebration, and you get, ah. Oh. But then right after that, then the question comes, but did you see the gorilla? And it is so fun to watch people's faces. I'm just going to tell you that. Like, they did this study with Harvard, uh, back at Harvard, and about 50% of the people saw the gorilla and 50% didn't. So I'm like, well, I want to go find out. So I, like, started taking my phone around the church and asking different staff members or people who were here. And I'm like, hey, watch this. And just like it, I don't know exactly 50%, but we had quite a few people see it and quite a few people who didn't see it, you know? And even, like, talking to a couple of people, they're like, I knew there was something because I felt like I had to kind of look around something, but they never watched to see what it was because they were so focused on this basketball being passed. And that's what happens. Sometimes we can be so focused on the task, basketball, basketball, pass, 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 counting that, that we miss what is right in front of us. And so we can be so focused on the crowds or we can be so focused on ourselves that we miss the person who is right in front of us. And so I wonder, what is it that you see? Like when you're at the store, what do you see? When you're at work, when you're at home, when you're in your neighborhood, maybe even when you're driving, what is it that you see? I would bet that what you see is what you've trained yourself to see and what just becomes normal and routine. And so the second life question I'd love to ask you or have you ask yourself is this. Do I focus on myself far more than I care for others? Like, even unintentionally, have I turned the focus towards me instead of seeing those around me? Seeing people. I want to camp out on that for just a second. Because in the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, where we see Jesus living on this earth, there's this phrase that, that says, Jesus saw. And we find that phrase 40 times. 40 times in the Gospels. And sometimes he saw the crowds, and he has compassion on them. But a lot of times he saw 
an individual for who they really were. You know what? He didn't look at them based off their status. He didn't look at them based off of their accomplishments. He didn't look at them based off their family name and origin. He didn't look at them and judge them based off their sins. He saw them for who they were. And I wonder, how do you see people? In fact, God kind of had to teach Samuel a lesson in the Old Testament when God tells Samuel, hey, I want you to go and anoint the next king of Israel, go to the house of Jesse. And so he goes there, and here comes the first son walking across. And, and Samuel's like, that's got to be the next king. I mean, he looks the part and all that kind of stuff. But this is what God says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him says, the Lord does not look at things man looks at. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. And Jesus, when he would see people, he could tell that they were lost or they were hurting, and he wanted them to experience wholeness the way they were made for. He wanted them to experience freedom. He wanted them to experience real love. Like he wanted them to understand that you are a daughter or you are a son and you are welcome to be part of the family. That's how he saw people. If you still have your Bibles, turn to Luke 15 because there's a situation where some of the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they are angry that Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, those sinning for a living. And he's looking at them going, he is hanging out with them, he is uh, eating with them, and they are angry about this. So Jesus tells three stories. I want to look at the first two. So in chapter 15 of Luke, starting at verse 4, here's what Jesus says. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or... Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, and she says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so here we have Jesus telling these stories, and it's all about how God the Father, how Jesus searches people out when they're lost. And he goes and he finds the, sh the sheep and he puts it on his shoulders. He will carry them back to the flock because he is excited that he found it. Or the coin, I found it, I am celebrating. Come, celebrate with me. Because Jesus is saying, when someone who is lost, they come and they give their life to me, they come and to be part of the family. There is a celebration that happens, a celebration that we cannot even imagine. But he also says, that there's a time and place where someone has wandered off. You were part of the flock, but the sheep has wandered off, and yet Jesus still accepts them back in. And he doesn't yell at them when they try to come back in. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't say, well, you need to do X, Y, and Z before you can come be part of the flock. Instead, he is ready to throw this celebration that you are choosing this. You are found. You know what? That's the way that God wants us to see people that they are a son or daughter that is simply waiting to be found. And man, I tell you that Jesus, he zoomed in 
on individuals that even religious people kind of push to the side and would say, you're not good enough. That is never the way Jesus saw anyone. And so here's another life question for you. Do you see the people around you for who they really are? Do you see the people around you for who they are? Or maybe you haven't even realized it, but do you begin to judge people based off the money they have or the way that they dress or the people that they hang out with? Or maybe uh, things like their past and rumors that you've heard that may or they may not be true. Maybe you judge people based off how much Bible do they know or even like what they can do for you. Even unintentionally, have you begin to, you look at someone and you immediately begin to think that instead of who they are. Because again, if we want to make a difference, our eyes need to be taken off the crowds. They need to be taken off of us. God, help us to see this person for who they really are. They are a son or a daughter that you are ready to celebrate. Celebrate. You know, I think about when I was a kid, um, probably second, third grade, I remember this one snowy blizzard, okay? So back in Missouri, I remember it was about 16 inches of snow that we got. So that was big for us. And so I remember, though, that it was also super cold, like so cold that we couldn't go outside to play in it. I don't know if you've ever had to be that mean mom or dad saying, nope, I know there's all that snow, but like your face will freeze if you go out there. And so like we could not go outside. And as kids, we're like, but we really want to. And so I remember playing games. I remember watching like movies on the VHS and all that kind of stuff, but like really wanting to go outside. Mom and dad saying no, and it felt like forever that we were stuck inside. But finally on the fourth day, on the fourth day, it was warm enough. And mom and dad are like, hey, we can like dress up and we'll go outside. And so my sisters and I were like, yeah, we finally get to go outside. So we're all dressing up and we're like jumping out there and doing snow angels, you know, and we're like throwing snowballs at each other and getting the sled and pulling each other around. And then one of my sisters says, hey, let's build a snowman, you know, kind of as a celebration. We can look at it and we'll just be excited that we got to come outside. And so as a family, we started doing that. Start with a little snowball, you know, and rolling it up. And so then like my dad's lifting up the ones up to higher and we're like dressing it up. And so it was so much fun building this snowman. It was kind of this celebration of, oh, we've been inside all this time, but now we got to do this. Well, it was a couple weeks later, our family was in the store and we were walking down this aisle and my sister, one of them actually looked up and she said, look at that plate. And on the plate was a snowman. And so one of my sisters again said to mom or dad, could we get one of those? Like just to remember that time that we got to go out and celebrate and all that kind of stuff. And it was fun. I remember watching my mom and dad look towards each other, their eyes kind of meeting and smiling like, yeah, we can. But instead of buying one, they bought the set of four plates. And so we had them at home. And, and it was kind of fun because then we would begin to look at this and even find more meaning in it. You know, I don't know if you've ever done that. But we had the snowman to remember ourselves. But then there were all these snowflakes. So we just talked about how that will remind us of how much snow we got that one year. And then we were looking at it. And there's a little heart down here. And we talked about how that's kind of the love that our family has for each other. And then there's even a bird down here. And we kind of laugh because we're like, hey, you remember the story of Noah when they've been on the ark forever? And like God then sends the dove. And so it comes back because there's no place to land. But then and finally it lands somewhere. And so it's like the freedom. And it's like, hey, that could be our reminder that we finally had freedom from inside the house. And so anyway, what happened is, as we all grew older, like my parents kept one of the plates and all three of us kids got one. And we have it somewhere where it's really special to us, where we remember that moment that we just got to celebrate because we were so excited about everything that had happened. Okay, time out. I do need to tell you, 
that that story that I just made up <laughs> is not real. I also need to tell you that's a 99-cent plate from Goodwill. <laughs> now, I tell you that one because I want you to still know that everything that I say up here from stage is honest and truthful. And so why did I tell you this story? And why did I break this plate? Well, first of all, I don't want to break anything that really matters to me. <laughs> just telling you that. But secondly, that plate, it really didn't mean anything to you. Like you had never seen it before, anything like that. But I told you this story, and it was something that was important to me. And so when it broke, there was an audible gasp. Some of you, your hearts are still up in your throat and all that kind of stuff. Some of you hate me right now. That's fine, okay? <laughs> but here's the thing. The reason that I did that is because there's a lot of times that we are just surrounded by people, and sometimes we even treat some people kind of like that, that we just push them off, and it's not a big deal. Or we come in contact with people who have been broken because of other people and things that have happened. And God wants us to see them important. Because just like that plate was important to me, like people really are important to God. So we need to change our focus. God, help us to see other people as important. Because when Jesus is here, he's like, yep, Jairus and his daughter, they're important. This woman that has been bleeding for 12 years, she's important. These tax collectors, these sinners, they are important important. And so we need to treat people with love and importance. And so here's my fourth kind of life question for you. Who needs to be seen by you today? Who is it that needs to be seen by you today? Who needs to be noticed? And some of you already know who that is because you've already been trying to invest in them and show them love. Some of you know who that is, and you've been like convicted by the Holy Spirit. You should talk to that person, but you've been putting up a fight for a while, and maybe today is that day of, okay, God, I'm giving in. I'm going to do what you're wanting me to do. Maybe for some of you, it actually begins a prayer of, God, will you show me the one? Will you show me who I am supposed to reach out to? Or maybe the prayer shifts, and God, will you help my heart to be ready for anyone who comes into my life that I can show them the love that you want me to? And maybe as a church, we simply begin to pray, God, will you give us a heart for the one? Will you give us a heart for the one? You know what? I remember a movie from a few years ago. It's called To Save a Life. And maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't. But in the beginning, there is a high school boy that takes his life. And you watch people deal with that in different ways. And some people are affected. A lot of people just try to push it off and they try to explain it away. But there's this one character, his name is Jake. And he really struggles with this. Because at one time, he had been friends with this other boy. But due to decisions they've made throughout high school, they go in different directions. And so he plays the what-if game for a while and tries to think through everything. What could I have done differently? But he also learns at some point that that's not necessarily healthy. There's nothing that I can do about the past, but I can affect the future. And he begins to look for the one, the kid that is maybe all by themselves. Or even the person that's in the group that, you know, is physically surrounded by people but still feels completely lonely and out of place. He continues to have his eyes changed so he could look for people and influence them. And even telling that, you might go, yeah, but that's a movie. Like, how can God use me? And I get he can use people. Like, I look around this room, and there's people that, man, the talents they have or the money they have or the story they have. Like, God can use them, but how about me? Can I encourage you with this? That I get when Jesus was on earth, he's still the son of God. But from a human standpoint, he was born in this town that a lot of people look down upon. He never traveled really far from his hometown. He never got a college degree. He never was voted into office. He never had anything on the resume that you would just go, wow, 
didn't start a podcast, wasn't TikTok famous. What Jesus did was he loved one person at a time. And I know every single one of us can do that. So here's three challenges as you leave. You know, maybe one of these life questions has already gotten you, but three challenges, and one of these may be something that God is speaking to you this morning. The first would be this, that maybe you need to start living with the right focus. I need to take my mind off of just victories come in big settings and things like that in the crowds. I need to take my eyes just solely off myself, and I want to begin looking at other people for who they really are and loving them. That's challenge number one, and maybe that's what God is putting on your heart today. Challenge number two is that maybe you need to let the shepherd save you. Like, you need to allow him to rescue you. And sometimes in conversations I get, people are like, well, I'm still searching for God. Like, I hear that. Do you realize, though, that God's not lost? Like, he is where he's supposed to be. He is looking down upon you. And sometimes what is, is we want God to fit into our box. This is what God should look like. And man, my prayer is that you would step back and you would understand the unconditional love that he has for you, that he has died for you, the life that he wants to give you, and you say, yep, I'm in. And maybe you felt even his spirit convicting you, and I need to step out, but I'm afraid, and today's the day you're like, okay, no longer am I putting this off. I want to be part of the family. Here's the third challenge. Maybe you need to come home. Maybe you need to come home. Because maybe you're like one of those sheep that actually wandered off, and even where you're standing, you're like, I didn't mean to. I didn't even realize I was this far away from the shepherd. But you're like, I want to be back underneath his arms. I want to be under his provision And so maybe part of your prayer today is, God, I am rededicating. I am wanting to be focused on you and feel the blessings that come from being part of your flock. And if you're looking for a flock, if you're looking for a church to be part of, know that you are welcomed here as we are simply trying to follow and love the shepherd. One thing that I love even about this story about the lost sheep is that all of us either are the lost sheep right now or all of us were the lost sheep. There's not that much difference. It all comes down to, have we chosen to follow the shepherd? So here's what I want. I'm going to give you about a minute, and I want you just to pray whatever it is that God is putting on your, on your heart right now. Maybe it's one of the life questions. Maybe it's one of the challenges. Maybe there's a person. Maybe it's God. Who is this person? I don't know, but I simply want you to pray, and God, help me as I leave these doors not to be the same person as when I walked in. So why don't you pray right where you're at, and then I'll pray here. God, I pray that you would help us to have eyes for the one. God, that our hearts would be open to reaching out to the one because people are important to you and we want them to be important to us. God, we pray that through this, it's nothing that glorifies any one of us or even our church, but God, it's something that advances the kingdom and the family of God. So God, thank you for your word. and Thank you for Jesus who loves us all individually and died for us and man is ready for us to be part of the family. God, we love you. 
It is in your name that we pray. Amen.